Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. Does anybody in this country remember the late, great Vietnam War? My guess is that it's faded very rapidly and almost out of consciousness, except for the some two million American men and women who were rotated through by the military, and of course, for the families of the 56,000 Americans who died there. Four who remember are Vietnam veterans, and they're with us tonight. Charles R. Figley, Jack Thompson, Peter Zaspro, Marty Sandberg. We're going to be talking about the situation of the Vietnam veterans. In fact, Charles Figley is a leading young psychologist who has just edited and written a good portion of a very interesting volume titled Stress Disorders Among Vietnam Veterans. The situation of the veterans and their reflections on the war itself and Lord knows what else. We'll be into a retrospective on the Vietnam War and a prospective on just what can and should be done for the veterans and we'll begin that conversation right after an update on the evening's news. Our guests tonight, all four of them are combat veterans of the Vietnam War. Charles Figley um, and Jack Thompson ten years ago were just back. They had just returned within the last few months. Charles Figley went on to get a doctorate in history. He is now I beg your pardon. Charles Vigley went on to get a doctorate in clinical psychology. He is now a professor at Purdue University. Jack Thompson went on to get the doctorate in history, and he's now associate dean at the Northwestern University Evening Division. Pete Zastro, ten years ago, was just getting ready to go, and he is now the one of the national coordinators of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And Marty Sandberg, ten years ago, as near as I can figure it, was on the scene. And he now works for the First National Bank and is a past commander of the American Legion post at the First National Bank. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Vietnam War and about your own personal experience. Is there any, I would bet there is for each of you, some single memory that comes back often and that in some way serves in your own private psychological processes as the symbol of your experience. Would you trade some of those memories for me just to get a feel of how you remember the war? Marty Sandberg. Okay, Milt. Well, my first experience was, I, I think, almost as any Vietnam veteran uh, might understand that was out there, uh, is that uh, I was scared to death, like, like uh, I think I should be. Uh, I had many experiences out there, many unpleasant ones, and uh, it was really a uh, great experience for me. I really, uh, it opened a lot of avenues to me. I was kind of... Uh, maybe soft-spoken and now that I return there's so many things that uh, I want to do and it really uh, opened my mind to a lot of things. Sounds as if in a way you had a good war. Not exactly. The first six months was uh, rather mild. The last six months was rather unpleasant with the Tet Offensive. And uh, Were you at the receiving end of the Tet Offensive? More or less, yes. Where were you during the Tet? Uh, in Quinn Yang. What do you think when you read in the papers about how uh, the United States Army really won Tet and only lost it through the media? I know there's a big article like that in one of the papers here in the last oh, month or so. Well, I think the media really played it up. Um, I think we really won Tet. And I think the media just played it up. I, I don't believe what the paper said. I see controversy already beginning to emerge, but I want to stick to my scenario just for openers. It's Astro. I'm looking for a memory that sort of symbolizes for you what that war felt like and what it means to you in recall. I think probably the thing I re 
that I still flash back on was the experience of uh, the first Cav Division, which I was working with, moving a group of Montagnard villagers who had lived in their area for 900 years. We decided that they were uh, uh, under hostile control, and we had to get them closer to an American camp. So we moved them lock, stock, baggage, and pigs, uh, put them into wagons, their wagons for the most part, drawn by ox cart, brought them to mm, right next to an old deserted American airstrip, and then brought in the 1st Air Cavalry Division band to play for them. And at the same time, we were doing that, and they were eating snake, which they had caught on the spot. Uh, the village commander, the district chief, was there with his Polaroid camera, bought from an American PX, drinking French liqueurs in the tent that had been set up first uh, where he was going to stay for the day so he could oversee his villagers getting moved with the protection of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Cavalry Band. That is bizarre and surreal, and that's why you remember it, I suppose. Charlie Figley. That's so long ago. Um, I don't have very many good memories, unfortunately. I'm not uh, looking for good ones. I'm just looking for the ones that really stand out. I guess for me, there, there are two. One is the notion, when we went in, um, we were the, the first offensive troops to land. Everyone thought we were going in to test equipment, uh, to, to scare the, uh, the enemy away and then go back to Okinawa. And uh, the, the date of our departure continued to be set back and uh, until you know we were in it for good. I guess the other thing was that the uh, first part of my tour over there, I mean, yeah, the first six months or so weren't, wasn't that bad. but. I guess the worst part for me was uh, when I learned Vietnamese and I started talking to the people other than those that were uh, had some control, in other words, the elected officials, I uh, discovered that it wasn't as simple as I thought it was. Uh, the people essentially suggested that it was Saigon's war and not theirs. And we discovered that, um, that the hostile fire that we got the other night, I, I, one particular night, I discovered was a farmer um, whose land we were on, and he was <laughs> bought this gun, some blazer got this gun, and was shooting at us, hoping that he would scare us away, all 3,000 of us. And uh, to me, I think it, uh, the war and the stupidity of it uh, came crashing down on my head, and, and I think from then on I was scared. Before, I don't think I was scared, because I was afraid that, that my passion and concern for the guys that I've already lost and the ones that I perhaps would lose would overcome me, and I would kill that farmer. Mm -hmm. Jack Thompson. My uh, uh, memory coincided uh, in, in many ways with uh, those already expressed. Uh, I identified almost immediately with some of the things that uh, uh, Marty had to say, uh, or Pete had to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I was an advisor to a Vietnamese infantry battalion. Uh, I was not with American unit. I had an Australian warrant officer and a Marine Corps staff sergeant and uh, other members of my advisory team. And uh, my first meeting with my counterpart was, uh, he was the kind of man you have described as uh, uh, the village leader. Uh, he uh, said to me, uh, in the first instance, now you buy me one Salem. He meant by that you buy me one carton of Salem cigarettes and uh, further that he'd give me 118 piastres, which was the exchange rate uh, for a dollar, what we paid for a carton of cigarettes. And uh, he would uh, then take it to the black market and sell it for 1,000, 1,500, 
he asked her, to make himself a handsome profit. I told him no, that, uh, that I wouldn't do that. I thought that dishonest. And from that point, he refused to speak to me again in English. Um, I had bad relationships uh, uh, with him. With Marty, I shared uh, the experience on first landing in Saigon uh, of, of fear. I don't know that mine was more intense. I do know that uh, I was aware I was going into culture shock. We'd been prepared for that. I was going to have to eat Vietnamese food, live on the Vietnamese economy, uh, and that ultimately I would learn many of the same things from the Vietnamese that Pete learned. Uh, it was Saigon's war, not most of the people's war. Let's confront that directly. Uh, I think I pick up from three of you, but not necessarily from Marty Sandberg some uh, sense that by now, as you reflect upon your experiences in the Vietnam War, that uh, you should not have been there, nor should any other Americans, that it was a war that uh, you think we should not have fought. You haven't directly said so yet, but that's the impression or intuition that I think I sense. Uh, what are your reflections on that? Ten years later, roughly ten years since uh, any or all of you were there, do you think you should have been there? Do you think we should have been there? Okay, I, I think it was a basic principle of American foreign policy uh, that we should respond to any free nation's call for help when freedom is in peril. And also, uh, at the time, South Vietnam was trying to remain free of communist aggression, and I think it was our nation's responsibility, and I still believe that. Marty Sandberg has responded, as I rather thought he would, and I guess I'm taking into account also the fact that you're a past commander of an American Legion yes, post. Sir. Pete Zastro is one of the national coordinators of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. They organized during the war to oppose it, and Absolutely. it interests me that you've still got the same name for your organization. The war is over, isn't it? Well, as you pointed out, uh, there are still a whole lot of Vietnam veterans around. Mm -hmm. And second, it's pretty clear that uh, one of the reasons, as you said in your introduction, that the Vietnam War has kind of been forgotten, pushed aside, is the fact that the U.S. government is always getting ready to uh, stick its fingers in someplace else send us off to fight another one of their rotten wars, and the only way they're going to be able to do that is if they can make people forget what, in fact, were the lessons of Vietnam. Now, wait a minute. They haven't sent us off to fight any of their, quote, rotten wars since then, have they? No, they can't. They had a uh, military that was pretty much in revolt during Vietnam. They had millions of people out in the streets saying, uh, well, Vietnam veterans against the war was only one of many, many groups that were opposing the war. For a long time, it has been very difficult for the U.S. government to try to dabble in Africa or dabble wherever it is they might like to go next. Uh, they'd like us to forget Vietnam. And no, I certainly think we had absolutely no business there. Uh, I also think it is very true that it was part of American foreign policy. One, the South Vietnamese government was certainly not a free and independent government. It was entirely propped up by the United States, which wanted to keep a foothold in Asia, uh, which had certain uh, great economic interests in Vietnam, well, in the rest of Southeast Asia, too. Uh, you know, I can remember the kind of thing where we used to go out and pay parents, I think it was $60 when we accidentally killed one of their kids. We paid the French plantation owners 600 bucks every time we knocked over one of their stupid rubber trees. That, I mean, that just really symbolizes for me the American involvement in Vietnam. I'm sure Charles Figley has some attitudes of his own as to whether we should or shouldn't have been there, but also I'm very interested in what you've picked up in the large study that you've done and have recently reported. Uh, as I understand it, you interviewed uh, 
some five or six hundred Vietnam veterans. Nine hundred and six. Nine hundred, a much larger sample than I had thought. And six. And six. And six. And, uh, yeah, we've got to be very precise about that. Uh, and undoubtedly, you got them talking about their attitudes towards the war, as well as a great deal else concerning their experience since they came home. What are their attitudes? This is why I was going to sort of uh, pass it on to my historian colleague. Um, I think the attitudes that came back are just simply bitterness. I think it was a very painful experience uh, in the interviews, and they, they really didn't want to get into politics. Uh, every time, essentially, w the way I see Pete speaking, it reminds me of those interviews. I mean, it was just very, very painful. And I would say that it, would, it was split down the middle. Some were very much in favor of the war, uh, as Marty is, and others were just were totally confused, and the others were absolutely opposed to it. But uh, there was no really clear census. The major thing was that uh, they didn't really want to talk about the political overtones, and we didn't press them for it. Well, as a historian, uh, Charles, I can't uh, comment yet because uh, people like you are still creating the data that we will we will one day use. Um, I can comment personally from conversations I've had. Uh, my sense is that it's about a 50-50 split, but that the generalization that, that bitterness dominates is, is correct. Uh, bitterness uh, uh, on the part of those who uh, feel we were right in, in, in being in Vietnam uh, in the sense that uh, they were deserted somehow by uh, the American people. That, uh, Stabbed in the back by the hippies and the pinko professors back uh, then. Yeah, I, if one wanted to put it uh, as, as actively, I think uh, they see it not quite so active, uh, just simply a, a falling away uh, uh, dismissal, as it were. Uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, there's a bitterness on those who oppose the war um, about uh, uh, our reasons for being being there in the first place, our reasons that were were never clear and that by 1966 had boiled down to uh, uh, one reason, according to John McNaughton, the Assistant Secretary for Defense. Uh, that was uh, uh, maintenance of U.S. credibility. And uh, uh, that's not a very good reason for being anywhere, and one can probably justifiably be bitter uh, on those grounds. Uh, then there is, among, I think, almost every veteran I've met, uh, a bitterness about the, whether it's a conscious effort or not, uh, to sweep us all aside, to dismiss us, to forget us. And that certainly is reflected again in the data that Charles Figley has collected and in the articles that various other contributors to the new book, Stress Orders Among Vietnam Veterans, deal with. Um, we want to get to that and get to it almost right away, but I will remind you, one of the reasons you fought in Vietnam was to defend the free enterprise system against the onslaughts of encroaching totalitarian communism. Oh, that was it. I and that being the case, you won't object if we indulge in the free enterprise system just briefly and then right back to our conversation that lots of us have these days, and uh, may maybe it reflects how uninformed we are, is that the Vietnam veterans got hooked on dope in an extraordinary uh, degree, and many of them still are, that they suffered low morale when they were in Vietnam, and they still remain, many of them, in many ways, uh, low in morale, depressed, disoriented, anomic within our society, 
that they spent a lot of time killing their officers, that uh, the whole uh, structure of army or military discipline tended to break down, and that the veterans, now that they're out, are in the main quite hostile towards the military, that in general, they have become a kind of new cast of forgotten men, but they remember and remember quite bitterly and are still suffering. That's certainly overstated, as I've just reviewed it, but there is in the data that uh, are presented in your book, Charles, uh, some, um, uh, some confirmation of that view, it seems to me. Yeah, I think the major contribution of the book is to um, try to tease out and separate the fact from fiction. Um, we have an image problem, those of us who are sitting at this table. Um, we're seen, as, as Milt has described us, as, as uh, freakos, uh, drug-doped-up weirdos, uh, flashbacks to the battlefield, uh, can't keep a job, uh, those sorts of images. Um, from the research, not only uh, in the greater St. Louis area, among American, uh, 630 American Legion uh, veterans that uh, we studied and uh, the research that we've done on college campuses in Indiana and California, confirm uh, the fact that the veterans feel that they are casts and outcasts, but in fact, uh, the great majority of them are doing very, very well. Um, the problem is that when some research is reported, the press takes over. I think media takes over, in effect, both the entertainment media and the um, news media. The, uh, in the book, we point out that the, um, um, the, the psychiatric labels that are associated with the Vietnam veteran, for example, the, the post-Vietnam syndrome, was uh, thought was created in uh, the New York Times uh, city desk, uh, reporting on uh, a veteran who was a, I think his name was Dwight Johnson, a sergeant, uh, a Medal of Honor winner that was killed in a, in a robbery attempt in De Detroit. He was uh, receiving um, some psychiatric treatment uh, in Pennsylvania. And I think his name was Nordheimer, John Nordheimer. Um, labeled that post-Vietnam syndrome. My point is that uh, the great majority of veterans are doing extremely well. As a matter of fact, we were very surprised to find out how well they were doing. Um, however, uh, as the, con the Consortium on Veteran Studies, about eight of 80 of us have uh, more or less agreed, when we attempt to describe the problems of the Vietnam veteran, the press uh, ignore our, um, our um, warnings not to overgeneralize beyond our sample and suggest that all Vietnam veterans are what we have found from our very limited sample. That's the journalistic version of Gresham's Law. Bad news drives out good. Yes, hmm. and bad news also sells papers. That's why it drives out good. Yes, yes. And sells movies and sells sure. TV programs because right. the uh, image certainly is one that is very popular about now. Right. And we've got, what, ten major movies this year. Yes, right. Right. The, really, the I don't know about you guys, but uh, the only movie that I feel uh, has a great deal of credibility and accurately re reflects uh, at least the psychiatric, psychological problems of the Vietnam veteran is Coming Home. Um, you'll know if those of you who have seen it, um, both uh, Voight and Dern, uh, in their roles, uh, display characteristics of delayed combat stress or simply combat stress disorders. Uh, in Voight's case, as a disabled veteran, uh, no, no one really saw him as having a problem. But as he faced a high school class uh, following uh, a statement by a Marine Corps recruiter trying to get these high school boys into, into the Marine Corps and into Vietnam, uh, he shook, 
he could not really adequately express himself. He had a great deal of emotion associated with that. And that is the residue of Vietnam. I think the problem, the major problem is that we, that we really don't understand the phenomenon. We try to simplify it, and it, it can't be simplified. It's extremely complex. I want to toss one possibility at you, and I'm probably wrong, and I've got no right to talk about Vietnam. I wasn't there. But if you take the fact that uh, this was the only war in our history that officially we more or less lost, I say officially. In fact, we haven't done as well as the conventional patriotic version of American history would suggest in all of our other military encounters. And if you take in addition that this was the war, I think, that was just about the most unpopular in all of our history and uh, did not maintain strong public support back home nor, pub nor strong support within the ranks of the military itself, a war about which many felt guilty, felt that our side was guilty. Is it possible that that gave a special cast to the war and in turn has given some special cast to the problems experienced by Vietnam veterans? Mm -hmm. uh, I responded when, when you uh, made the statement that this was the war, first war that we had officially lost by, by shaking my head. That, I think, is uh, uh, one of those uh, items of journalistic uh, bad news, uh, bad news driving out good. Uh, the war was never our war to win or to lose. It was simply our war to be participants. We never officially declared war, as a matter of fact. Uh, no, we never officially declared war. But but even beyond that, in terms of, uh, if you will, the metaphysics of the war, we couldn't win or, or lose it. Uh, it was up to the Vietnamese people. Uh, it was their war. Uh, we were participants. And they won it. it the portion of the Vietnamese people, yeah, they, they, they won it. Let me give away the notion I'm playing with and by stating it more strongly and simply than I have. Um, and I'll do it by seeking protective cover behind uh, William Shakespeare's significant front. He said everything. He did say everything. And in Hamlet someplace, one, I think it's Hamlet, one line is, make mad the guilty. What I'm suggesting is that there may have been a load of guilt carried by a lot of Vietnam veterans, which contributed in some special way to such distress as they felt while they were there and to such stress disorder as they've got now. The stress may not merely be uh, having been exposed to a lot of battle and a lot of danger. The stress may have also been a moral stress. How does that grab you, Pete Zastra? Marty. Well, okay. Uh, I think what you're talking about is a real attempt to shift the responsibility for what was a bad war onto somebody. You have to say somebody is responsible for this. And so yeah, and the American, you know, the American left for a while was symbolizing the Vietnam veteran in the figure of Lieutenant Kelly. Mm -hmm. That's true. And as soon as they did that, Vietnam veterans against the war came up with what we called the Winter Soldier Investigation, which yeah. was 150 vets who all got up and said, look, I did the same thing, maybe not quite so many, maybe not quite the same way. And what I'm trying to say is the responsibility for that war rests very squarely with the U.S. government and with the people who were making money off the war. Now, obviously, the government can't come out and say that, so what do they do? They try to find all kinds of ways to pin this responsibility on individuals. And I think that's what they're trying to do with vets. Uh, I think that's what they do in television program after television program. Look, here's this absolutely crazy vet. And the hint always is, well, he was probably a little crazy before he ever went in anyhow. This is WGN Clear Channel Radio from Chicago. Let me get a comment on the same from Marty Sandberg. Oh, okay. Uh, I agree with part of what Pete has said. Uh, one basic argument uh, 
is the media. I think they just build it up so much out of proportion. I think uh, so much of it, they just gave the wrong angle of the veteran in a way. Uh, they took, uh, you know, like someone coming back just back from Vietnam, trying to make an adjustment, which is a difficult thing to do, just coming from a different culture and everything. And uh, it's also trying to find a job in the market. And uh, they just, you know, just say, hey, this is another hophead just coming back from Vietnam. And they try to characterize them. And uh, it was, I think the media really built it out of proportion, really. I don't think they gave the true picture. And the, what you've seen on television and the newspapers um, wasn't the true picture. Do Vietnam veterans experience that same bonhomie sense of camaraderie that uh, the veterans of World Wars II or I experienced? Do they cluster together and exchange nostalgic memories of their shared experience? Our research didn't show that. But Marty, you... I would, I would think the Vietnam veterans that I do know would rather forget about the war yeah. themselves. They Whereas World War II veterans, and I know quite a few of those, and I'm in that age cohort myself, they fondly still tell war stories. They may have some private about areas the that one. they don't get into. About the big one. About, about the big, the big one. one. Uh, but this was not a big one. Uh, I don't think they're so fond. I think there's still a certain number of the war stories. And it is true that, and I've just recently been going to school, a school here in Chicago, and I find, yeah, the Vietnam vets, because for one thing they tend to be older, do in fact tend to cluster together, and at some point you find out where the other person was in the military and what they were doing, and depending on how much you drink, that's when the war story Yeah, but so. Pete, let me ask you a question. Uh, have you looked up the people that you were with in Vietnam? A few of them, not very many. Did you seek them out? When I first got, got back, but that was yeah. nine years ago. I, I, again, from our research, uh, we find that that this is not the case, that, that uh, they tend to cluster together. They want to forget it as much as possible, as quickly as possible. My father is 80 years old, is a World War I veteran, and he's still in contact with a small, dwindling number mm -hmm. of uh, Army buddies from 1918. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, obviously, that, uh, that we lost the war. Come on, let's face it, folks. Uh, regardless of what history says, regardless of what the military says, the mi in the minds of Americans, we lost the war. Also in the real world. And <laughs> perhaps in the real world, too. So that's one factor. The other factor is, unlike other wars, uh, Vietnam was, was a technocratic, it was a, a very technical war. It was a computerized war. Uh, we were able to assess how long men could take it under stress in combat. So we in, uh, programmed in R&R. &R. Uh, we knew how long they could make it uh, in, the, uh, in a combat zone. Uh, and then in the equation is a number of able-bodied uh, potential combatants back in the U.S., so they developed 12 to 13 month rotation. The point is, when I was over there, we went in as a unit. We were the last ones to do that. Um, you came after 1966, 67 as an individual. You left on the Freedom Bird back to the States as an individual. Uh, there was a great deal of guilt, a great deal of remorse uh, while you were uh, going back. There was absolutely no, very little talking. There was no celebrating. Uh, this is in, in sharp contrast to uh, the other wars. We had two um, army officers in here just about a month or maybe two months ago. They had they've just done a book. They're both they're military intellectual types. They're both academic and still Who are, do you army remember their reserve. Names? I forget their oh, names right okay. now, but we'll check it out for okay. you later. But in their book, they argue that morale in the United States military is at a very, very low state. And the basic reason why they have discovered through their kind of data um, 
reflection and analysis is just the sort of thing that you were now referring to, Charles, that uh, the military have bureaucratized the, the services. Career development is very important for the officer corps. There's an awful lot of rotation. There is no longer a stress upon building a unit that uh, stays together. The guys who play together, fight together, and uh, hang together, and maintain morale. But when you've got this new uh, bureaucratized kind of structure, the sort that was designed by McNamara and his whiz kids when they took over the Pentagon, that destroys the possibility for building that central quality of brotherhood, which sustains men in battle and in fact makes them better fighters and also protects them against those very stress disorders that you, Charles, have been studying. Does that make any sense to It seems uh, really oversimplified because, again, Vietnam, well, to keep an army really fighting, it seems to me you have to have people fighting in it who believe in what they're doing. And I think this probably started to break down in Korea, and it certainly had broken down a very long ways, not for everyone, but for an awful lot of soldiers in Vietnam. Didn't anybody believe in that? Surely no, General Westmoreland believed in it, or did he? Oh, I don't know. He had a perfectly good career out of it, I and mean, he gets 1,500 bucks a shot even now to go around and lecture on college campuses. No, but seriously, as you were there and as uh, you and your buddies talked about it, weren't there any who were gung-ho for this? Well, oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. There's no question of that. It, it really depends on where, when you went. Again, in the initially, um, I don't know what Jack's experience was, but, uh, you know, we were very gung-ho. As a matter of fact, uh, um, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. No one had ever heard of Vietnam uh, when we volunteered to go. It was exciting. Uh, it's like when you're learning football, you're always in calisthenics, you're always doing the fundamentals. This was an opportunity, you know, to test our equipment, quote-unquote, both uh, the material and the human uh, equipment. And we were uh, given a line. Uh, obviously, uh, we had to go over there for a good purpose, the, the locker room talk at halftime. Uh, and again, this is one of the reasons why a lot of guys are bitter when they come back, that they were duped. The, uh, the image that, that uh, Charles has used, uh, the locker room talk and football, um, is an image, I think, that pervaded uh, much of our entire effort, even at the, even at the government level. Uh, one more bombing mission. It's a long pass, and it will get us out. It's one long bomb. It's like us, the great Pentagon phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel. They yes. yeah. kept yeah. telling you the light was at the end of the tunnel. But more serious uh, than that, I think behind it was this syndrome of, of, of one long pass. One, mm -hmm. one more bombing mission will, will, will get us out of this. The same time Nixon was giving instructions to the bedskins, as I recall. Yeah, about that's, 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 that's true. It, it, it's a syndrome, I think, that, that goes all the way back through American history. We'll go get us one good gunfighter to come in and clean up this town. Uh, that was the kind of... The uh, Marines, you know, and you are a former Marine, are still looking for a few good men. Isn't that their slogan? For a few good men. Uh, and I was about to say that it's, uh, uh, in, in my memory, uh, an, an attitude that pervaded uh, the thoughts of, of uh, all the advisors who went over. Uh, I'm going to clean this up in a, in a year. Uh, you, you had a year. You knew you had a year. And by the time you were done, uh, it would have been cleaned up because you were on your way. You were the gunfighter that, that they needed. No, no, I'd like to shift, uh, if we could. Um, any, any place you want to go. Yeah, uh, I, I really want, you know, we've all agreed that uh, it's been a long time since we've come back. I think we're, we're trying to put the war in perspective, and, uh, and, uh, and that's why I think we're dwelling on that. But I think what I would like to dwell on and uh, focus on is the future and the present. We have a major mental health problem in this country, and that is among the combat veterans. 
and I'm not, I'm not speaking only of Vietnam. I'm talking of all combat veterans. And what we have attempted Charlie, to do... Charlie, I thought you, <coughs> you said earlier that most of them are doing very well. Yes, most of them, meaning the Vietnam veterans, are doing very well. There are eight and a half, almost nine, well, nine and a half million Vietnam-era veterans. There's only two and a half who went to Vietnam, mm -hmm. and half of those were in uh, life-threatening situations. Ninety-five percent of the mental health problem, if, uh, as we have characterized it in the book and in the President's Commission on Mental Health and a number of other uh, forums, ninety-five percent of that is among co combatants. Um, there is much more of a, 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 a much more similarity among uh, Vietnam combat veterans with other com uh, other combat veterans than uh, Vietnam era veterans. Let me get clear on the so numbers. So it's not just the, uh, the. Let me get clear on the numbers yeah. uh, before we begin talking about that. Okay. And I think we should certainly talk about it after some commercials, which are almost due. Uh, how many were in combat, and what proportion of them? by your estimate, are, are in some serious trouble? Uh, there were two and a half million who went to Vietnam. Some of the research that we found is that even those people who were not in, uh, on patrol still felt stress because you can be in a base camp and be bombed at any time. Uh, there was all kinds of booby traps and all that sort of thing. Uh, you could be uh, killed by civilians, uh, in effect. Uh, so we really see two and a half million as being in jeopardy. Among those, uh, there's a fairly small percentage that are, quote, walking time bombs. What we're talking about is the residue of Vietnam that needs to be corrected. We're not talking about people who can't keep down a job because of uh, the residue of Vietnam. We're talking about guys that wake up at night uh, shivering, talking about guys who have this continual theme of thinking about death of uh, not having as much motivation as they would like. We have families that write continuously at Purdue University to, to say, I don't know what's wrong with my, my son. I don't know what's wrong with my husband. He was, he's different than when he... When okay, it, there, there's it was, a range of disorders. Yes. Uh, but how many people are within that range? Would well, guess? Of the two and a half million who served in Vietnam? We're suggesting that about a million men need psychological readjustment counseling. That's a large number. Yes. Forty percent or thereabouts. Right. Well. Let's take care of some commercials and let's get more of the picture on that and reactions from our other three panelists. We're talking tonight about the Vietnam War and the problems it left us, particularly the problems of the veterans of that war. Our guests are all veterans of that war. Marty Sandberg was an enlisted man. He is a past commander of the American Legion Post at the First National Bank of Chicago, where he works. Pete Zastro works full-time on Vietnam Veterans Affairs. He is one of the three national coordinators of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. During the war, he served as a captain in the Army. Jack Thompson was a captain in the Marine Corps and is now associate dean of the evening division at Northwestern University. And Charles Figley was another enlisted man, another grunt, I guess, in the language of that war. He was in the Marine Corps. He is a clinical psychologist who teaches psychology at Purdue University and is the editor and senior author of the new book, Stress Disorders Among Vietnam Veterans. And we do come then directly on the basis of what you were laying down before to the question of stress disorders. I'm really a little startled by your estimate that over the broad range of stress disorders, perhaps one million of the two and a half million who were in Vietnam are in that category. Yes, it, it, we have to be... F this is one of the reasons why we put the book together, because it's extremely complex. We're not talking about uh, a million guys who will, will freak out and uh, machine gun down in, in elementary school. Uh, what we're talking about, as a matter of fact, let me, let me attempt to change the distortion that, that, uh, that the, the media has it's created in terms of uh, the problem of Vietnam veterans and all combatants, really. Um, 
The Vietnam veteran has a flashback or has an episode um, that carries him back to Vietnam, and he reacts in that way. In other words, a delayed stress. He does not necessarily react violently. Uh, the major stress in Vietnam was not necessarily violence. The major stress in Vietnam was saving your rear end. Uh, thus, um, when two things happen, one is when it simulates the environment of that particular stressful event, or when the stress in and of itself uh, reaches a particular level. For example, a major disappointment, uh, loss of a friend uh, by death, uh, a divorce, uh, loss of a job, or whatever. Um, those can stimulate uh, this residue. And again, it's not just a Vietnam veteran. It's more complicated, more difficult for the Vietnam veteran, I think, than other combatants because of the nature of military psychiatry uh, at the time during Vietnam, because of the use of, um, of drugs over there and the rotation system, but also because the country was not really willing to accept the Vietnam veteran. You talked uh, about Shakespeare. I would like to say that one of the, what we, uh, a phrase that I really like to use a lot is blaming the victim. In many ways, the veteran, the Vietnam veteran, was a victim, and we can blame him uh, for the war as well as other things. But uh, the consortium on veteran studies, that's based at Purdue, is particularly concerned about um, generating more data, more information, and developing uh, the best possible information about uh, stress in general, but in particular in combat, and then try to do something about it. We are at the stage of, of trying to do something about it, but we're having a very difficult time. Let me uh, look for exemplification of what you're talking about, and at the risk of being perhaps too intrusive. I want to ask our other three guests, are any of you aware of flashbacks, as Charlie puts it, and of patterns of stress that do recur, even though it was ten years ago uh, that you were last there? Yeah, let, let me start. Now, um, <coughs> I have an advantage, uh, I think, that, that Marty and Pete don't, uh, in that uh, I've gotten to read many of the essays in the book. I was impressed as I as I read the book that uh, there were things uh, in this research and in these in these data in the book that uh, are uh, occasional incidents still in my life, an occasional dream uh, that will awaken me in the uh, middle of the night. Uh, other kinds of behaviors that that I'm aware of. Um, one I analyzed shortly before. Uh, uh, I read the book, and it arose uh, from family situation. Uh, when uh, I'm at home at dinner, trying to talk to my wife, and uh, my son, who's six, needs some attention and begins to make uh, uh, noise, uh, kind of an incessant babble that, that young children will do, I find myself talking louder and louder to get through uh, to my wife. But it's the same kind of, uh, it, almost as if I were screaming over the radio in a combat situation. Oh. Uh, and I feel the same kinds of stress that, that uh, I felt then. Uh, um, now that uh, I've, I've reified that almost and talked about it, I can I can deal with it and control it. I think a little better. Um, but it was uh, it's 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 that same kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure we all shared uh, experiences similar to one I had right when I got back. Uh, Chinese New Year's. Yeah. I landed in San Francisco. Uh, my wife and I were on a cable car, and uh, a string of firecrackers went off. I started to go to cover very quickly, uh, off the cable car into the gutter, and uh, I realized before I did what I was doing, I looked up in chagrin, embarrassment. My wife patted my hand as if to say, okay, but uh, I, I knew everybody on the uh, 
cable car was staring at me. And, and Marty Sandberg, what happens to you at the First National Bank when they slam shut the great door at the vault? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, Milt, uh, going back to what Chuck mentioned earlier on the flashback, uh, I think uh, like if a dear friend passes away or a neighbor or someone to that effect, that reverts back, in my mind, back to Vietnam. That's the first assumption that comes right in my mind that, uh, you know, it's you just don't want to think about it, but it comes, it hits you face to face, and it's a reality, and it's something that you have to really face. And it, it's every time, uh, you know, there's a death in the family or, or a neighbor, it just flashes back to my mind. It brings in a memory. We had, as I was telling you off the air earlier tonight, we had on this program just a little while ago a congressional candidate who happens also to be a VA psychiatrist. Well, he's no longer with the VA, and he's very angry at the VA. He was in a fairly high position at the local major <coughs> veterans hospital at Downey, and uh, he indicts the whole organization, the VA and its medical service, for simply not rendering proper service to its constituency, not merely the, veter the veterans of the Vietnam War, but all the other veterans who passed through those portals. Uh, medical care, psychiatric attention is simply inadequate these days, so much so that this man is in fact, on the basis of a rather complex litigation, suing the Veterans Administration or at least some of its high officers. What can you tell us about the Veterans Administration and its attentiveness to the needs particularly of those one million or so uh, stress-loaded Vietnam veterans? I believe that the Veterans Administration is presently understaffed and I think uh, they just don't have the manpower to uh, to handle the situation. I think that's one of their main problems. And also they don't uh, really think the Vietnam veteran mainly is that, uh, the, you know, potentially uh, the main concern. That's possibly mm -hmm. part of it. Certainly older veterans, the World War One, and I guess now more and more the World War Two vets who end up living in the VA and essentially dying in the Custodial. VA talk more and more about it just being a warehouse to lie in until you go ahead and die. Certainly the red tape at the VA and the bureaucracy is sometimes almost overwhelming. Uh, but there's, again, it seems to me a, a somewhat deeper problem there, and that's that uh, the Veterans Administration doesn't make any money for anybody. It has a whole lot of very dedicated people, particularly at, at some of the lower levels. Uh, but because it doesn't make any money, as a result, they squeeze every nickel they can squeeze. Mm -hmm. When they're faced with something like a million Vietnam vets, like you're talking about, who might need some kind of psychiatric care, they're going to fight tooth and nail to avoid giving that out. Uh, I know I was just down there recently around Agent Orange, which is this right. defoliant they were using in Vietnam that yeah. uh, may be killing who knows how many Vietnam vets causing everything from numbness of fingers to deformed children and so forth. And saying, look, I have this particular problem, now what are you going to do about it? And the VA's response is to throw the blame right back on me. Well, tell me exactly when and where you were exposed to it and prove that it caused it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not a doctor, I don't have uh, vast research staffs. And besides that, it's very hard to remember where I was on a particular day in a particular jungle ten years ago. Let me get a little bit more on that. What uh, I know that Agent Orange was one of the defoliants that we used as uh, we were fighting that war at a high level of technological proficiency, uh, so we said. Uh, what do we now know about the long-range effects of exposure to Agent Orange? 
Even back in 1970, the Vietnamese were putting out films showing the deformed children of women who were in areas where this stuff was being sprayed. It was used from, I think, 1962 through 1970 and maybe up through 1972. That's not absolutely clear yet. Uh, the U.S. government has a tendency not to let out anything that sounds unfavorable. Uh, but what has been found more and more, and it started right here in Chicago with a, uh, one of these dedicated VA workers I was talking about before, she started putting together facts and figures around a certain number of vets, all of whom had a number of relatively common problems. Like I say, it was numbness in fingers and toes. It uh, had it was decreased sexual urge. It was baldness. It went on all the way up to various forms of cancer. And like I said, deformed children. Uh, talking to individual vets who have not, whose wives have had uh, a number of spontaneous abortions or miscarriage after miscarriage, I, it's as a human problem is something that is really tremendous. And again. The VA is trying to shift the guilt and say somehow, you did something wrong by catching this stuff. Uh, the burden of proof is on you. That's exactly what it comes down to. Well, I gather your organization, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, is now seized of this problem and is pressing hard on it. How does the American Legion react to this sort of problem? Well, Milt, presently, uh, I'm not familiar with the defoliation program as it is, uh, but from what information that I do have is that the VA is presently understaffed. And that's the reason what they tell me. And uh, I believe they are. I've went to a lot of the VA hospitals, and most of them I find are very, there's a lot of dedicated people, but they are understaffed. They are understaffed, but I mean, the way you avoid being understaffed is you give the VA the necessary money to get a staff. Right? This is a very interesting angle. Charles and his colleagues, the co-authors of this excellent new book, Stress Disorders Among Vietnam Veterans, put their stress on psychiatric disability of one sort or another, on emotional problems mm -hmm. that trace back to the exposure to the war in Vietnam. But here now we have actual organic problems yes. which also have their source in that same exposure. Yes. And what's the connection? There, we don't know. Uh, the, the, the difficulty is that uh, it's, you know, we talk about the VA being understaffed, and it's absolutely true. They're under, uh, the research on the Vietnam veterans is incredibly difficult to get in terms of money. It's almost impossible, and uh, I believe me, those of us in the consortium have attempted to try. Uh, I've said this before, Purdue University has been incredible in supporting and assisting as much as they can in the research. Um, but there has to be, and there definitely is, from animal research, interaction between the biochemical, endocrinological uh, system and the behavioral uh, system, psychiatric, psychological uh, system. We need definitely need more and more research on that. Um, we can go on and on about the difficulties of the VA and, and how money is spent on basic research that has absolutely nothing to do with the veteran experience. Have we always been that ungiving as a nation to our veterans after the wars, or is it because this war was a war we lost and was quite unpopular. Are we giving uh, more callous treatment to the Vietnam veterans than we gave to the veterans of the last two great wars? I think so, Jack. Uh, my, uh, my, my thought is, uh, as, as I think back to the wars, that uh, yes, we are mistreating uh, Vietnam veterans more than, than veterans of other wars. Um, as I recall, there was only one uh, loud outcry 
against the treatment of veterans uh, after an American war. That was after World War One, uh, similar to the kind of uh, outcry today. Uh, the, the Bonus Army uh, that marched to Washington at the uh, height of the Great Depression. Very much, Jerry. Our guests tonight, Marty Sandberg, Peter Zastro, Jack Thompson, Charles Figley, all Vietnam veterans. And Charles Figley is, as well, the editor and senior author of the book I've mentioned a few times tonight, Stress Disorders Among Vietnam Veterans. It's just published by Bruner Maisel. And I do want to say personally that having worked through this book and judging it as I might now, uh, as a psychologist interested in matters of this sort, I think it's first-rate work and extremely valuable and should be commended to anybody who's interested in the matters we've been discussing tonight, and everybody should be interested in those matters. 591-7200 is the number, and here is the first call. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi. Um, yes, sir. I'd like to uh, ask your panel I, I, uh, about a few things I don't think they've really touched upon, okay? All right. Like, uh, for instance, you know, the war is over with, and uh, I'm, I'm a Vietnam veteran myself, and... Uh, I don't know, you know, like they just haven't hit upon like uh, educational assistance, mm -hmm. jobs for vets, and uh, decent housing, you know? Like I have, I don't know, uh, maybe one of your panel, panelists uh, can, can answer this question for me uh, along with those other ones. I, I feel a, a, a great deal of animosity towards other people that didn't spend any time in the service. Not that I'm gun ho or, or anything like that, but they, it seems to me they, they got a chance to stay home get some seniority on a job, and they have a house. I'm still struggling trying to make it through through school and trying to get a better job, you know, because I'm going nowhere with my present job. Well, surely the veterans organizations that are represented here tonight worry about such matters. Well, presently, uh, in regards to the educational, uh, were you, uh, where were you stationed? Uh, how long have you been out now? Ten years? Well, yeah, I... Okay, I have, you know, used my GI Bill and everything, okay? Yeah, because it's only good for 10 years from the... Right, but the thing is, I mean, you know, when you really start talking about, you know, a decent education, that GI Bill, you know, just about puts you to a junior college. Well, partly, I blame it partly on the administration. I think they should have extended it uh, indefinitely, personally. I really do. I think they should have extended it at least uh, to 20 years rather than 10, because a lot of things... Uh, you know, within a ten-year period, it's a it's relatively a short period of time to, you know, refer to your education. Pete Zastro, are the Vietnam veterans against the war involved in matters of this sort these days? No, there are a whole. I I think you went through part of the list, and it goes back to some of the things that were said a little bit earlier in the program about the way Vietnam vets are basically thrown away after the war. And mm -hmm. our GI Bill is something like three hundred percent less in terms of buying power than the GI Bill was at the end of World War II. Uh, jobs, uh, particularly among younger vets, jobs are still really hard to come by, and there are certainly cases of people being turned down from jobs just because they say they are, in fact, Vietnam vets. And what we get in return for all of this is promises from people like President Carter when he wants to win an election about all he's going to do for vets, and in fact, when he gets into office again, vets benefits don't make any bucks for anybody. And as a result, he does absolutely nothing about them. But this is inconsistent with that statistical finding that Charles was reviewing before, that most of 
the veterans, or at least most of those sampled in the various studies that you've reported, are, to quote you, doing rather well. Well, again, in terms of the psychological adjustment, but uh, the unemployment is significantly higher. Every, every, uh, every age group, um, particularly among blacks or non-whites, I'd like to uh, focus on another thing that he said that I don't think that I think that we have forgotten: the notion of the bitterness towards those guys who avoided getting into the military. Um, it, it's very interesting uh, the discovery that I made in talking to all these guys. They made a point that here, all of us as Vietnam veterans risked our rear end. We followed the flag. We did what our country expected us to do. We came back around the lowest end of the of the totem pole. The highest is POW, and I, you know, and I appreciate what they've gone through. But it's, again, some of these veterans, uh, I never really re realized this. They were saying, in effect, look, they got caught. There's a lot of us that, that got shot down or, or got pinned uh, down uh, behind enemy lines that made our, our way back. Another uh, folk hero, those people that avoided the draft or deserted their country when they were in the service. Now, again, I don't necessarily hold those views, but it's interesting that uh, the, the first phone phone call mentioned this. Yeah, uh, like, I, I don't know, you know, I, I can't really put it together in my mind. Uh, I don't hate the people, per se, that, that didn't that didn't go, you know, but I, I feel like uh, I got cheated, you know, like I'm, 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 the three years I spent in, uh, like, I'm behind the times from, from the rest of my friends, you know, from, yes. from the rest of my age group, like, most of them already have their, already have their degrees or they're sitting in a in, in a pretty in a pretty good job, you know. And here I am, like like in garbage or something, still trying to struggle along, trying to make it, you know. And you wonder if your day is ever going to come. I I don't know because I I have a I have like a, a friend who's also a Vietnam vet, and uh, we talk we talk a lot about it. But he seems to be about the only one I can really really talk to about it that really understands. You know, the rest of the people I wouldn't even waste my breath, you know, tell them. But it's really good that that you have a program like this on WGN to let the rest of the world know what's Well, and it's really good you called us, and I think you've made an excellent uh, contribution to our discussion. Thanks very much. Okay, thank Keep you. talking. Good night. 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Hello. Yes, sir. Hello. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm an older vet that uh, served in the Korean era, and also because of my attitude, I marched off to the colors for Vietnam. And the situation is that I'd like to ask why VA had armed guards. When I tried to get my GI Bill, they had armed guards greeting me at the door, escorting me in. I realize you don't have a veteran's representative there, but escorting me into the West Side Hospital up to where the records counseling was taking place. And when I asked for my records in counseling, all my records uh, were stolen from the VA. Along with this, I have, for the past 10 years, been attempting to get educational rehabilitation. And their attitude was one of, well, you have your college degree, you have your graduate work, why bother us? And we don't feel that you're qualified at this time, psychologically, to take any rehabilitation. And I've appealed twice, and I'm treated like some hotball, even in my own neighborhood, which is uh, a Polish area. The situation is that, uh, really, uh, you, they look cross-eyed at you, yeah. and their attitude is a negative one all the way through. Yeah. 
Well, you may be up against something which is uh, far more broadly distributed and isn't uniquely a characteristic of the VA. It's what's known as bureaucratic indifference and rigidity. Well, that might be true, but at the same time, with the job of being a disabled vet, too, uh, attempting to go into some of these disabled yeah. uh, programs, you just, as uh, this young fellow that was on just before uh, me, he mentioned the fact of his friends with their college degrees and having uh, secure jobs. Well, here I am with a college degree, and the minute they find out Vietnam, uh, they don't want to touch you. Over 35, hey, forget it, fella. You, we don't want any part of you. And as a result, I had to take mediocre positions, and uh, it, it's really sad. And the whole attitude towards the Vietnam vet I felt was one of negative, uh, it's just even uh, negative tolerance. Marty Sandberg is and nodding as if he knows. same token, even the political parties, they say they have all these job programs for Vietnam vets, disabled vets. They're phony. I see a number of our panelists nodding uh, in sympathy and uh, apparently in empathy. Uh, what can you add? Or for that matter, what advice can you offer? I can't offer any advice. Uh, I can say that I have... Uh, uh, met with some of the things that uh, this gentleman uh, has talked about in terms of uh, age. I'm 38. I've had difficulty uh, finding jobs. In part, that's because I'm, I'm a historian, I think. Uh, but I've had a colleague who's a historian who uh, was not uh, uh, in the armed forces during Vietnam apologize to me uh, for his, his success. Uh, the fact that he has a, a job, he doesn't have to search for a job as a historian. He has tenure at a, at a good institution. Uh, he recognizes that somehow that's been denied for me, to me, and he feels guilty about I'd like about to make that. one comment, uh, if, my, if I may interrupt. The fact that even the government, they say, well, fine, you have all of this experience, you, you have this education, take the government uh, positions and qualify for a GS rating. Well, the point is that if you haven't had a uh, work history for the mm. past 10 years, what they will do, you pass the exam, you get an A. Uh, the situation is that they disqualify you on the work experience. You can't give them a solid work experience for 10 years at an executive level or managerial level. You're automatically disqualified even from a governmental GS program. Well, you know, I begin to get the feeling that we're going to hear a lot of such complaints tonight, and I begin to get the additional feeling that maybe we're on to something, that maybe the proper historical or sociodynamic interpretation is that the Vietnam veterans have been shunted aside more than the veterans of other earlier wars, and it is because we would all, those of us who weren't there, we would like to forget that war as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that's true except for one group, I think. Uh, some friends I know who were conscientious objectors. Uh, I had no opinion uh, one way or another uh, about uh, the amnesty bill, the amnesty program. Uh, I was shocked to discover that uh, these friends who were conscientious objectors were most distressed about it. Uh, what were they? Uh, they felt that uh, in, in many ways that uh, uh, they had paid a price uh, uh, like veterans had paid a price, and uh, that uh, those who now were seeking amnesty were, were selling out. Um, so there, there's a group uh, 
who were not participants in the war in, in one sense, who were participants in another sense, uh, who perhaps are not willing to forget. I think, though, the man that just called, there, there is an undertone of rage and anger and hostility. I think those of us who are Vietnam veterans are a little bit more timid than other veterans to sort of stand up for our rights and say, by God, we're going to get what we deserve as veterans. We put it, we risked uh, our lives for this country. I think we, we, we deserve something. I think we all, in many ways, we've all sort of been programmed to sort of sit back and be rather passive. <coughs> And I would like more of uh, those kinds of men to stand up and be counted. I find it interesting that uh, two of you were officers, two of you were enlisted men, and we haven't yet talked about something that I've heard a good deal about, if, if only anecdotally. And lately I've begun to read some confirmation of what I heard anecdotally. Fragging was the term. That is, enlisted men killing their officers. And, and some officers killing officers, too. Fine. Yeah. Uh, rather terrible, but uh, that that fills out the picture. And, but much more of that supposedly happened during the Vietnam War than in the Korean War or World War II or World War One. Is that the case as you remember it? What did you observe, and what does that tell us about what happened in Vietnam to the very spirit of the men we sent there? Let me put it in context and let everyone fill in because it didn't happen while I was there. I was there very early. The major difference between Vietnam and other wars is that, uh, in other wars, you went in for the duration, you went in as a unit. Vietnam, you were there to survive. People got off the plane and started counting down the days they had left. That same rotation system we right. referred to before. Right. So the major goal was not to win the war. In effect, the major goal was to save your rear until you got on the Freedom Bird. Uh, well, no, wait a minute. I've got to tell you. Okay. I'm quite convinced that the major goal in all wars from that war through World War II to World War I to Caesar's invasion of Gaul, the major uh, motivation on the part of the ordinary soldier was to save his uh, life and to get out alive. But to save his life in order to win the war. See, this the interesting thing in Vietnam is... That's, that's been a secondary consideration for most foot soldiers. Yeah. In Vietnam, the, way, the ticket home was uh, to win the war. In Vietnam, the ticket home was to survive until your time was up. The 365 yeah. days. Yeah. So if, if you had five or six days left and some officer came down and said, okay, let's take that hill one more time, boys. Um, he, first of all, he's an idiot for doing it. But secondly, you know, you're jeopardizing your guy's survival. So that's, that's when you shoot the officer. Well, there's you a great deal you, you don't really go out and shoot the officer. And the fragments, in fact, did take place while I was there. And I personally think a whole lot of them were probably well-deserved. I remember the time that I was going out with a captain who had just taken over a company. He was on his second tour in Vietnam, and he definitely wanted to move up in the military. And he was bound and determined that what he was going to do with that company was win himself a silver star because he'd missed one the first time around. What that meant was he was going to get as many of his men killed as were necessary for him to win his silver star. Well, frankly, I think his men would have been perfectly correct to get rid of him. They didn't, though. I wasn't in a situation to be able to follow that one. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. It was... You were almost always in a situation where getting rid of an officer who was particularly obnoxious or particularly dangerous to your health was possible. I, <clears throat> I go along with Pete said also in regards to uh, a big disenchantment between the enlisted men and officers. 
a lot of the officers have been out there more or less for personal gain as far as rank concerned. They might go out as a come uh, go over to Vietnam as a first lieutenant, go to captain in in uh, within a year or two if they uh, take a couple of hills and uh, inflict enough casualties, they'll come back as a you know, a major, and then they'll have a good assignment in the in the states. And most of the enlisted men uh, resented that because they had, uh, you know, they just couldn't see that. And I kind of went along with that. It's who is the cannon fodder and for what? But in what way, then, was that war different from all other wars? It seems to me that's always been the issue, and that's always been the base of the resentment that enlisted men feel towards their officers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't clear. It, it, it wasn't clear. I can't comment on fragging. Uh, I was not with an American unit. Um, I feared fragging from a, a different source that was was, was, was constant. Uh, uh, I try to remember literature. I think probably stories that we've all read, the Red Badge of Courage and, and uh, other kinds of stories, remembering uh, uh, those things about Bob uh, uh, Kipo, uh, Save Yourself, uh, Shooting Officers. You know, it just comes to me. Somebody was right. Was uh, which w which of our generals was a chairman who said war is hell? War is hell. The man really had a pretty good fix on reality. Didn't <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, my fix on reality requires that we take care of some overdue commercials and then right back to the telephones. The number five nine one seventy two hundred. Number five nine one seventy two hundred five nine one seven two zero zero and right back to the telephones. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. I'm I'm an ex marine. I'd like to throw up the idea of self pity. What I mean by that is, I think we all had a choice. Either go in the military and go to the war, or be a draft shot, dodger, and go to Canada, or whatever you want to do. Can I have comments on that? Sure, I'll give you a comment on that. I think for some people, you were right. That choice did exist. If you were black and lived in Mississippi and went up in front of your all-white uh, draft board, you didn't have any choice at all. For one thing, you probably didn't know what the alternatives were, and second, economically, they just plain were not feasible. In fact, uh, at this moment, though we've got a volunteer army, we find that uh, the make economic enlisting is economic need, and we've got a disproportionately black army, haven't we? True. Can we talk about white middle class, though? All right, you talk about it. I myself, I made the wrong choice and went over. I am 33 years old. I was over in 65 and 66, first Marine Battalion, Atlanta, in fact. That's your life. I am a man in mortars, and I, I am wounded. But I believe I did make the wrong choice. I'm maybe I use psychological defenses to say why, but I feel that I did have a choice, and I made the wrong choice. And this idea of everyone hating the draft dodger or saying, well, I, I don't like the guy because he got a job before me, that was your choice. And then I like to get, maybe it's a double standard, but then the VA, I really got a raw deal from the VA. I mean, that, that, that bureaucracy, you, can't, you can believe it. Everyone knows how bad it is. It seems to me that you have kind of a strange thing that you're, you're, you're going on when you say there really was a choice involved. I mean, how many of us went over there because we'd been brought up in a good patriotic country and we had had the flag waved in front of us for year after year after year, and we actually believed these tales about going off and fighting for freedom and democracy. Let me, let me check that out. Hold on a second here. Let me check that out right now with the four of you. Uh, you weren't, um, uh, I believe Jack was a career officer. You were in before. We were considering, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, were the rest of you drafted, or did you enlist in the surge of patriotic enthusiasm? Well, I was drafted, and at the time, uh, I think everyone that I knew was in, that was right after high school, everyone that I knew was drafted, regardless. No, I joined it in 63, because I couldn't afford to go to college. I was accepted, but I couldn't go. Yeah, I went through ROTC, so in a sense enlisted, I guess. I think his point's well taken, in effect, to say, look, let's sort of uh, stop throwing stones at other people that didn't go in. We went in, let's get on with the business of living, and let's all collectively do something about the plight that we find, which, and you mentioned the VA, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, I agree with what you're saying. Well, we need more people to go, I think the word is maybe bitterness against the VA, mm-hmm. to really talk up about it, I know I had to do a lot of finagling, a lot of game playing, in order to get what's coming to me. Yeah, no. It took a lot of time, etc. Let me share with you uh, some of the change that, I, that I'm seeing in the VA. Um, the Consortium of Veteran Studies essentially is a group of uh, is a group of um, 80 academic types, mostly from universities, researchers, uh, therapists. With with our research collectively, we've gone to the VA and and showed them what we have. In effect, at least at the upper levels, they've taken us in. They've listened to what we've said. Uh, before Congress, you dedicated your book to Max Cleveland, who was the current head of the. Who is now? Yes, I knew him before that, and I dedicated to him as an individual, uh, not as the administrator, as it turned out. Um, essentially, what, this is the first time in history the Veterans Administration, as a group, is promoting psychological readjustment for the for the Vietnam veteran. For the last ten years, the the Senate has passed bills. It's been rejected in the House. It has not been supported by the VA nor the the major veterans groups. The American Legion, I am going down to testify uh, this Saturday to the American Legion uh, based on the research that I've done with their members and uh, the other research to get them behind this bill. The first time it's ever been done. Uh, judicial review, uh, if, if you get turned down for a case, there's nowhere you can go. The VA for the first time is ready to support judicial review. for review. So I think there are major changes in the, the top. Sir, we thank you for the call. Okay, thank you. You're going down to New Orleans to the American Legion Convention. Before you arrived tonight, Marty Sandberg and I uh, were talking about that, and I was giving him some good advice about restaurants in New Orleans. I'm not going to be there one day, and I'm going. <laughs> well, for one day, you go to Maybe I'll meet you down there. Is that right? 5917200 is the number, and on to another caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, Dr. Rose. Yes, sir. I have so many things to say, I don't know where to start. You start with the first, then you go to the second. First and... of all, I'm a wounded World War II veteran. There was fragging over in Italy, usually for glory-bound officers, without a doubt. Yep. Hasn't changed. Uh, it sounds like a rerun of 33 years ago. Mm-hmm. When we came back, we griped about the same things uh-huh. these young men are doing. Uh-huh. The men who were 4Fs, the fellows who got jobs ahead of us, who got their schooling ahead of us, we faced the same problems. Well, were you and your buddies as embittered towards the VA in those days? Well, that's my point. I want to ask this question of Pete. Now... At your age group, there should be many young men in Congress who served in Vietnam. Twelve. Is that all? Yep. Yep. Well, that really surprises me. And I'm just amazed, and I'm, I'm behind all of you men 100%. Right. Because there is no difference in the veterans. Yes. World War II or Korean, World War One, and certainly not the Vietnam War. That's good to hear. And I have never, ever heard any World War II veteran ever bum rap you guys in any way. Oh, my. And I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we really appreciate that, sir, but I can assure you from all of the vet- Vietnam veterans that we have interviewed, it's almost consistent. Every single one of them have felt 
that they are second-class citizens in terms of veterans. Now, I, again, I see the, the major veterans organizations coming around to this and saying, hey, look, we're all veterans, the, the scenario that you're suggesting. And I'm hoping that that will catch on. Well, certainly. What is the difference? Uh, whether you die in the jungle of Vietnam or over in Anzio? Exactly. That's right. Uh, That's a good point. Well, uh, thanks again, Dr. Wilson. Well, I thank you for calling, sir. Bye-bye. Good night. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello, are you there? Hello, hello, hello. I'm afraid you're not. Good evening. You are on the air. Are you there? Good evening. How do you do this in military parlance when you're trying to connect up to your telephone? What do you say? I'm not working. Working? <laughs> working. <laughs> Is anybody there? We are having a little trouble on the telephones. Uh, time to say this is WGN, Clear Channel Radio from Chicago. 5917200 is the number. 5917200. Because we didn't make connections with the last two callers, there are about two lines open. Hello, are you there? Yes, Mr. Rosenberg. Fine. Yes, sir. I should like to make a statement. I believe that any army is dependent upon the people back home. Yes. And not getting into the politics of whether we should or shouldn't have been there. I fault the American people, per se, on that in my experience, although I did not serve in the Vietnam War, you could take nine out of ten people, or 99 out of 100, I'm, I'm just making up a, a, a rough estimate, and ask them, what is a Viet Cong? And they cannot give you the answer. Now, they've seen it on television, they've read it in the newspapers, they've seen it portrayed in movies and in books, and how the hell can you expect your people to fight meaning your people, your soldiers, your sons, when you really don't give a damn about what's going on in the first place. Now, World War One, World War Two had a little more defined lines, and even some people would reason us to well, we should have been in World War One. I. I think World War Two was certainly a definite. And I think the American people forgot about the Vietnamese ve uh, veteran when he was a Vietnamese soldier. No, sir, they didn't. Uh... While our four guests were fighting the Vietnam War, I was collecting and analyzing data about American public opinion on the Vietnam War. And uh, I can assure you that there was no national issue of greater significance than that war during the years from 1967 to 1972 or 73. Uh, the American public was much involved, though it was torn asunder with regard to how they felt about the Vietnam War. And in fact, attitudes were changing over those years. The great silent majority that Mr. Nixon claimed to favor the Vietnam War, in fact, were very ambivalent towards the war. And by 1972, American public opinion had grown grossly intolerant and grossly rejecting towards that war. Some 80% of those questioned in standard Gallup or uh, Harris poll samples expressed essentially um, a rejecting view of the war by 1972. It was our national preoccupation back at home. We weren't ignoring it. We were just agitated over it and confused by it. Well, the point I'm suggesting, however, though, is that I believe the, the uh, real, uh, let's say, anti-war movement started because of the young who finally found that they were experiencing being sacrificed for no cause or no purpose. But I'm talking about the so-called uh, citizenry, the mothers and the fathers and the business as usual. Until they went to the streets and maybe burned down a building that was ROTC, threw a brick for a rock, and property was being risked at home, did then we see certain congressmen get in line, certain senators start taking positions. But for the first six years of that war, the VC, it was just a name. I think even now, though, even when you say, okay, Gallup poll shows you 
uh, showed the American people is starting to turn against the so-called silent majority. Those people, uh, and what I'm trying to say is we always say we don't wish history to repeat itself. Mm. I'm talking in a philosophical sense then, that for any future encounter, we should know what is PLO, we should know what is Israeli, we should know what is what is going on in Pakistan or Turkey or, and before any congressman would take the liberty or any president sees the opportunity to introduce in our behalf those causes that would cause us to go somewhere when we didn't even know the initials and what they stood for or the fight of the cause. I they have to bring it to us first to allow them to let us go. We're late for some commercial, sir, but I think Pete Zastro wants to make a comment. Yeah, if you go back to something like the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which was pretty much manufactured by us coming up with this military venture that supposedly went on there, what you're saying, though, really is that the only way people get changed is they go out in the streets, and if it takes throwing rocks or burning down a building to do it, that's what it takes to get things done, the way this system works. We've got to pause and take care of another batch of overdue commercials. I'm so invested and involved in this conversation, I'm forgetting my duties. And then we'll be right back to the telephones on 591-7200. We're on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. Uh, I'm a bit nervous to speak on the radio, but my general... I've been that way for the last five years. Okay. All right. First comment that I wanted to make was, in 1968, I had graduated from college and had a BA degree in history. And after testing the job market, there wasn't too much or a history major at that time. I uh, then was going to sign up for the Air Force uh, to go for a pilot program. I was quite prepared to go to Vietnam because I had really kind of ambivalent ideas towards the war. I was against the war, but yet I was quite prepared to become a pilot to get something out of it for myself. But uh, as things would happen, I was inducted prior to uh, going into the Air Force, and was fortunate enough not to go overseas, and I was stationed in Washington, D.C. at the 1st Battalion, 3rd Infantry, uh, the Honor Guard in Washington, D.C. My general impression was that in 1968, they had pictures in the, uh, in the areas where we kept our weapons for parade duties, and the pictures were of the head counts in Vietnam, whereby they were taking ear counts uh, for the kills. Mm -hmm. By 1970, when I left the service in Washington, they had removed those pictures. So there had been a general uh, change in feeling towards just in that period of the two years that I was there. Uh, another comment that I wished to make was that uh, after getting out of the service, I was able to use my veterans' benefits and get a master's degree and uh, went to work for the Veterans Administration in Chicago. I was in the adjudication department there, and uh, my impression after two, three years, it was about two and a half years working there, was one, the heavy workload, uh, paper and triplicate and quadruplicate, uh, a general conservative attitude by the adjudication mm -hmm. people that were hired not to give out benefits, mm -hmm. to limit the amount of their awards. And also the, the final thing would be a comment that the heavy workload, also the poor medical treatment. I would really feel sorry for anybody that would have to go to a Veterans Administration hospital. There are many good doctors, but many poor attendants, and I think that the, they are very sorely lacking for the help in the hospital. Let's pin some of that down right now. Uh, numbers, again, are what I'm looking for. What is the annual budget of the Veterans Administration? Seven billion? I don't know right offhand. Third, third largest in the 
third largest agency in the government. If it's seven billion, that's quite a lot of money, though. A good deal of that is I for think that's pretty close. disability pensions, I suppose. Some of it's for that, some of it's for the GI Bill, and a whole lot of it is to, well, it's the largest hospital system in the country. Well, is money the answer? Does it need more money? If you doubled the budget, would all the problems go away? The problems wouldn't go away in terms of the way the uh, government tries to sweep the war and its veterans under the rug. Uh, the two things are obviously related. The VA doesn't get the money because the government's trying to do that. And even if the VA could somehow get the money, that wouldn't change the basic attitude that's involved in all of this. I kind of agree. I think the uh, government is trying to forget about the Vietnam War in a part. Uh, they, uh, they know they kind of lost it, and they just want to more or less try to forget about it completely. So what's required is not merely an increase in budget, but some sort of re-education. Can I ask him a question? Sure. Those people who made the decision in terms of judicial review, uh, who were they? Were they our age? Were they Vietnam veterans, any of them? For the uh, judicial review? Yeah. Uh, well, the way our boards were set up were uh, the adjudication department uh, for general awards, they were generally just, uh, they were trying to get BA degrees minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, but a number of uh, minority people uh, that did not have the degrees were selected, mm. and there was a, a, a sympathy, at least I think, that was developed by those people for the applicants. Uh, in many cases, they were soon given high positions uh, on rating boards mm -hmm. towards uh, medical disabilities. Mm -hmm. But there they were up against uh, a doctor and possibly a lawyer on that board so that uh, their vote was only one amongst uh, three, so that they often passed over. Okay. Sir, we thank you very much for the call. Right. Thank 591-7200 is the number. Back for more phone calls after this last batch of commercial messages. Jerry, Charles Figley, before we get back to the phone, suppose there's somebody out there, and there must be lots of guys out there, or women. We haven't talked about women veterans and the extent yes. to which they may be suffering stress disorders, but there must be a few. Mm -hmm. Some of the nurses were under pretty mm -hmm. heavy bombardment. Mm -hmm. Suppose there's somebody out there who would like to find some vehicle for help other than uh, the regular recourse to the VA. What would you recommend? We don't have much time on the air. I, if we did, I would explain what's coming down the pike. Uh, the, the Veterans Administration will soon sponsor a study in the Chicago area. There's about 190,000 Vietnam veterans in this greater Chicago area. That's coming. For right now, every time there is a press release or any kind of a story related to my work, I get hundreds, well not hundreds, I get uh, I guess over a year, hundreds of uh, phone calls or letters from individual veterans or from their families describing some of the problems they've had. It's extra work uh, for us because we really don't have any money, but if you are having any kinds of problems, emotional problems in particular, or if, you're, uh, if you have a relative or a friend that's had those problems, please write the Consortium on Veterans Studies at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, 47907. And uh, we'll at least answer your letter and try to uh, connect you with uh, someone who's qualified. And for those who are interested in these matters and want to get some professional expertise on them, again, I would like to recommend the book edited by Charles Figley, Stress Disorders Among Vietnam Veterans, Theory, Research, and Treatment, just published by Bruner Maisel. With that, gentlemen, let's get back to the phone. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to take an unpopular stand I'm a veteran, and I, I really don't believe in veteran rights, uh, the benefits, I mean. I, I think they're channeled in the wrong wrong direction. Mm -hmm. I spent a week in uh, a veteran's hospital that really opened my eyes. I, I think those poor guys that are up there uh, are 
treated so terribly, and uh, they 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 spend money on sending uh, vets to schooling that I I know personally don't need it. Mm -hmm. They 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 do it just to kill time or for money. You say you're a veteran, sir. Are you a Vietnam veteran? Yes, but I wasn't in one. Uh, I wasn't in any uh, battle zone or anything. Mm -hmm. I was in there in '65, and it was better than stateside then. But uh, when, I, when I go on the street and I see vets uh, have to sell poppies to make money and you see uh, trucks drive around the streets with uh, uh, give us your junk uh, so the vets can have some money, these uh, poor disabled vets, I think they're treated so terribly. Right. I agree. I agree. Anyone who has seen Coming Home, uh, again, I really like that movie. Your point's well taken. I think many of the, the, the veterans' groups uh, feel that way. Individual veterans feel that way. But the problem is it's the only game in town. It's the only show in town. And I would promote the idea of, uh, of taking another look at the whole veterans' uh, service system, benefit system, because you're right, there's a lot of misuse. The guys that really need it are, in particular, are those guys who are uh, disabled. I can think of another possible show in town. Uh, the natural and spontaneous organization of yeah. self-help groups. Yeah. That seems to happen with all sorts of people who've got a certain kind of trouble which they relate to certain patterns of common experience, right. all the way from alcoholics to uh, addicted gamblers and so on. Uh, Bob Lifton uh, right. did work, and of course he's right. uh, the author of one of the chapters in your book, Charles, mm -hmm. uh, with some of those self-organized, spontaneous self-help groups. Has that happened much, or does it just happen around Bob Lifton? Again, I don't want to dominate this, but I think this is one of the problems in this country. We, we, have, we rely on the nat natural uh, human system to deal with our brothers and our sisters, our, you know, our fellow human beings, and essentially the government comes over. Now, I'm, I'm not an anti-government, uh, you know, that sort of thing, but uh, yeah, I, I agree, totally. Uh, Lifton's group, uh, High Shatton, uh, in the New York area, attempted to promote the idea of rap groups across the country to sort of deprogram all of us uh, in the war. Uh, it started and it lasted, oh gee, it must have been eight months. Um, and it essentially folded because of a lack of support, lack of promotion. That really sure. distresses me because I would think that you can get much more help from other guys who've been there when you pool your problems Absolutely. and really try to get to them in depth and you can get it from a 50-year-old psychiatrist. Yes. It's true. It's, it's, it's really true that the people who can most help a whole lot of Vietnam vets with problems are other Vietnam vets. But let's not, I mean, switch the issue, because in fact what you're doing is saying somehow, again, it's the responsibility of the individual vet to cure a problem that he didn't cause. Yeah. Who sent us to, this, to fight this war in the first place? And that's the government. Who takes our tax dollars to try to help people who need the help to build a veterans administration, which is supposed to aid and whatever veterans, uh, and let's somehow let them off the hook and shift the responsibility back to the vet himself? Absolutely not. I, that seems to me really backwards. Well, you could suggest that the government ought to put some of its money not merely into the formal structure of the Veterans Administration, but into the stimulation and maintenance sure. of some of those veteran self-help groups. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. The one doesn't no knock out that. the other as a possibility. Absolutely. There, there is historical precedent for that uh, viewed uh, uh, in its widest possible sense in, in um, all wars up to... Uh, the First World War, uh, the government gave grants of land to its veterans. Uh, those grants of land uh, were um, um, a job immediately. Uh, they were uh, a home. The, the things the first caller talked about, a home and a, and a, and a job, uh, the assumption was that the education was there to do the farming necessary. 
But there's also something that uh, government then never thought about, never had to think about, and that is that uh, the veteran had his family support him on the farm. That's uh, a sociological condition that's not always true today. And uh, these, these rap groups and the various veteran groups, uh, veterans groups, can can help provide the kind of support that, that historically yeah, the family provides. Jack and Pete, the bottom line is, are we getting the help that's needed? And it's not. No, we are not no, doing it, no. regardless of what system we're talking about. And, and again, from the top, from Max Cleveland and Guy McMichael and some of the people at the top of the VA, they're trying to correct this. Next year, in Chicago, in, starting in April, there's going to be a psychological readjustment program run by Vietnam veterans, treating other Vietnam veterans, paid for by the government. Gentlemen, we've got about four minutes left. I want to switch the game on you, if I may. Up to now, we've been talking, and I think you've made a very fascinating conversation now with this, and a very valuable one. We've been talking about, to borrow from title of uh, Charlie's book, stress disorders among Vietnam veterans and related problems, and the major related problem seems to be the inadequacy and bureaucratic uh, rigidity of the Veterans Administration. Let me shift from psychological stress to uh, political orientation to values and their transformation and transmutation in response to experience. What did the Vietnam War do to, to you for as people, and what has it done to other friends you have who served with you or uh, who've been through the Vietnam experience? What did it do to change your outlook on the world, your outlook on the nature of uh, this nation, your sense of uh, social justice and how it is to be pursued or what have you? Four minutes. <laughs> well, you're invited back another time when we can do it uh, properly, but I'd like to go out on that note if we might. Yeah, I think, well, my experience and the experience of most of the people I'm working with now is that for whatever reason we went to Vietnam, uh, the result of that experience was that we learned that we could not trust the government and that, in fact, something had to be done about a system which continued to send its young off to get used once and then get thrown away once we got home. And uh, that's exactly what Vietnam Vets Against the War is up to right now. That isn't quite an American Legion attitude, is it, Marty Sandberg? Well, what I think, uh, I, my viewpoint, uh, not necessarily the American Legion's, but my viewpoint would be if there is a future war, there might be some problems among the young people about joining the armed forces. And I think that is a very sensitive problem, and that's something that the... Uh, government and many of the people should start looking at because it's going to be a very sensitive one. Jack, are you a different man in your values and your social understanding than you would have been if you hadn't gone to Vietnam? I, uh, this, uh, this looks bright and then it, uh, then it turns very bleak. Um, my thoughts when I came back uh, were uh, a heightened value uh, in, in terms of uh, the stress I placed on uh, the meaning of human life. Uh, I valued human life much more when I came back from Vietnam. Then I also uh, had a random thought uh, that uh, two-thirds of the species that have inhabited this globe are extinct, and I wondered, uh, and I still wonder, how long it will take us to accomplish that ourselves, uh, to extinguish ourselves. War is certainly the easiest way to do it. And you're left with... Uh a stoical pessimism about the prospects for mankind. Not, not necessarily stoical, but uh, certainly pessimistic, yes. Sorry, I don't have anything profound. Um, I, I guess, for me, I have gone through many, many changes. In writing the book, uh, I went through a very emotional period in my life, uh, which I dragged back all of the memories that I really didn't want to think about. 
I think that I'm a better as a result of that process rather than better as a result of Vietnam. Uh, now I think I'm much more sensitive to the needs of human beings, much more cynical in terms of what the government tells me, uh, much more concerned about those who served with me over there. And in many ways, this book is sort of a manifestation of my commitment to try to end the war for the rest of my brothers who served with me over there. You remember that Pope Paul, in his uh, great speech before the UN, said, never again war. He spoke in French, jamais plus la guerre. That was the theme, that man must commit, the human race must commit itself to that as an absolute imperative. We will be in war again in, ten, in 10 years. You expect that, mm -hmm. do you? Well, happily, time is out, so I won't give you a chance to prove that to us. I'd like to believe that that is not the case. Gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been a valuable conversation, and to me, a very, very moving one, personally. And for the moment, that's all I can say, because we're out of time, except for thanks to Marsha Cassidy for producing the program, and we'll be back with you again tomorrow night.